The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. I'm Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer by trade, but my passion lies in teaching you the keys of persuasion and conflict resolution. My goal is to empower you to engage in these conversations confidently and effectively by not only sharing what works, but by also uncovering why these techniques work through revealing the psychological principles that lie behind persuasion. As always, this podcast is brought to you by the American Negotiation Institute, and the Institute has some very exciting news for you. On February 27th in Columbus, Ohio, we will be having our very first negotiation and conflict management seminar that is open to the public. It's an all-day training that will give you the confidence you need to overcome the fear and anxiety that come with difficult conversations, and it will also give you a powerful set of strategic and tactical negotiation tools that will help you to maximize the outcomes of your business negotiations and help you to deal with difficult people. And... We'll get to hang out after the session, which will be so much fun. There are only 20 seats available and space is running out because the Ohio State University's procurement team has already bought 10 of those seats. So if this is something you're interested in, make sure you don't miss out. Check out the link in the description to learn more. And if you have a job that pays for professional development training, they might cover the cost for you. So hopefully I will see you in February. Our guest today is Brandon Bruce. Brandon is the co-founder of Cirrus Insight. He's an exceptional entrepreneur and has grown the business to $12 million in revenue and a ranking of number 41 on the Inc. 500 list. I know you're going to learn a lot from this one. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Brandon, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Kwame. Thanks for having me on. It is our pleasure. I'm excited for this interview because I remember our call, our discovery call beforehand was phenomenal. I wish we would have just recorded that one, but we're here doing it again, so I'm excited. Absolutely. Let's run it again. Perfect. So how about you start off by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? It's great to be here. My name is Brandon Bruce. I'm calling in today from Knoxville, Tennessee, which is in the eastern part of Tennessee. We're close to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We're right down the street from the University of Tennessee, and up the road from us is the fastest supercomputer in the world called Summit at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, which is most famous for its role enriching uranium for the Manhattan Project, which helped end World War II. My co-founder, Ryan Huff, and I started a company seven years ago called Cirrus Insight. It was the first app to market that connected Gmail with Salesforce. So Salesforce, the big customer relationship management platform used by lots of salespeople and their companies. And Gmail, of course, one of the most ubiquitous email platforms on the planet. Now we connect to Gmail with Salesforce as well as Outlook with Salesforce, and we have mobile apps as well. But our mission and what we've achieved so far is really helping a lot of salespeople, about 150,000 across almost 5,000 organizations, to improve their workflow so they don't have to jump between their inbox and their customer relationship database. They don't jump back and forth all day. Instead, they can see their customer information from the inbox. They can update their customer information, and that helps them to really spend more time developing the relationships and doing less in the way of manual data entry, which none of us particularly like. So we're based here in Knoxville, Tennessee, as well as Ryan and the architecture engineering product team are in Irvine, California. 
Yeah, that is great. I can definitely see the use for that. So if there are any listeners out there in the sales domain, definitely check that out. And I am, like I said, pumped about this episode because we are now going to talk about what not to do in sales negotiation. And you have three tips for us to keep in mind during sales negotiation. And what is tip number one? Yeah, so it's worth pointing out all of these, as most lessons that we learned, have been learned the hard way. (laughs) Tip number one was in one of our early enterprise deals, we were specifically asked, hey, we want to get your best price. And frequently, a company will say, we want the best price across your entire customer base. Of course, they're not privy to those contracts, but they'll sometimes put something in there that says, you know, we could have the right to audit those, or we could find out if we're getting the best price, et cetera. Anyway, they said, hey, we want your best price on this. And they asked for it. And we said, okay, you know, here's the price. And then they went in the tank for a couple of weeks. Where did they go? You know, are they going to come back? Well, they came back and, hey, you know, we would like to move this forward, but we are going to need you to come down just a little bit. That way we can finally get this done. And I think the first time that happened, it was like, okay, look, we'll meet you where you wanted to be, you know, drop it a percentage point or two, and we can get this deal across the line. Fine. So came to that tacit agreement on the phone and then eh, give it a week or two more. And then they come back and, hey, you were really nice to do that for us. We actually need to come down a little bit more. That way we can finally get this done. At which point it's like you kind of understand the game a little bit more. This is a classic mathematical N minus one problem. We can keep subtracting until we get to zero or lower. And so at that point, I realized this is going to be something that's going to be applicable across all of our deals going forward, which is that when a client asks us, what is your best price, right? Or in real estate terms, what's your best and final? It's important that it is the final and that that's the price that you're willing to stick with come high water. So in that deal at that point and all time going forward, if we're asked for our best and final and we give it and the client comes back and says, okay, we need you to just do this to get there. So we're like, well, you know, we're approaching this with integrity, with honesty. You asked us for our best and final. And so that's what we gave you because you specifically asked for it. So we specifically gave it. And so the best doesn't get better. Some speakers will use this trick and it's fun. They'll say, hey, you know, everyone in the audience, you know, raise your hand as high as you can. Okay, great. Now raise it just a little bit higher. And everyone, you can see the arms go higher. And they're like, but I just asked you at the beginning to raise your hand as high as you could. So obviously you didn't do it. It's the same, I think, in this case, you know, so that you don't get kind of nitpicked to death and you start really eroding the value of the deal. It's important to announce, hey, I'm giving you the best price. Or if the client asks for it, we give it to them and then we don't stray from that. We stick with it. That's brilliant. And there are a few things that I want to pull out from this. First, if you can put yourself back in that emotional state that you were in during this deal, what impact did the silence have on you? And by silence, I don't mean specifically within the negotiation as in the conversation. I mean, silence in terms of that gap between conversations. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of this simmering period, whereas the salesperson, you're thinking like, I can feel it. I can see that deal. I can see the check getting signed and coming our way. And I've included it in the forecast. So the whole team knows now this is a client that's coming and we're preparing to onboard them and so forth. And then it goes completely dark. There's no communication. And so you're starting to wonder what happened, right? There's no one talking to me anymore. Did the deal go away? Are they vetting competitors if there are any? Did they run out of budget? Did my champion leave? Did someone on their side do a job transition of some sort? Like what in the world is happening? So you start to get really nervous that maybe I need to unwind the forecast. We need to de-prep everybody to onboard the client. You start getting worried you're not going to get the deal. That's what you want to do as a salesperson. It's all in the close. 
So when they do finally come back, it's like this big sense of relief. They're back at the table. We are going to get this done. And so your entire focus then becomes, we are going to get this done. Somehow the brain switches to like, I'll do anything to get this over the line because it was so painful to have that silence. I really don't want that silence again. And instead, we kind of have to embrace the fact that everyone's going to take their time. They're on their own schedule. We can project manage it as best we can, but we can't force the deal to happen. It's got to be a meeting of the minds in the middle somewhere. And that's okay. You know, at some point, they're going to decide they really want or need to get this deal done. And if that's now, great. If it's in a week or two weeks, okay, we're going to have to live with that. So kind of being able to deal with the emotional stress of that silent period has become part of normal deal making, especially the larger the company gets where you are dealing with procurement who's asking for best prices and other sort of terms is that that typically takes a while. Sometimes it can go quite fast, but more often than not, that's a multi-week thing where you're going through stages of different people and their managers and so on and so forth till finally someone's going to sign on the line. But yeah, I think the whole focus then becomes like, I hope they come back. And so the fact that they come back you start to get yourself in a place where you're willing to like, gosh, I would almost do anything so that they don't do that to me again, because I don't want to feel that nervousness, that anxiety of letting the deal slip through. You know, if you're on the procurement side of the house and you're listening to this, it's highly effective. You know, it's the same in sports, right? Where you ice the person that's shooting a free throw or you ice the kicker in a football game. Like, let's go ahead and call another timeout. We don't need to talk about anything during the timeout. We just want that person to have to sit and think about it for another two or three minutes. They got to sit through a whole nother commercial break. So we're going to ice them. And that's a tactic, I think, used in part to ice the salesperson to a point where they get nervous enough and you could make a mistake in the negotiation. Absolutely. And the thing is, a lot of times when people talk about silence in negotiations, they focus on the actual conversation. So giving pauses, strategic pauses to uh, one, two, three, four, five seconds, and it creates pressure on the other side. But people often don't take the next step and extrapolate the benefit of silence to the time between negotiations, because typically the person who perceives that they need the deal more is going to feel more pressure and will then make concessions to alleviate that pressure. And when you think about the norm of reciprocity, where if somebody gives you something, you feel obligated, you feel a sense of psychological debt that compels you to give something in return. In the situation with this negotiation, what they gave you was a sense of relief. And relief is one of the best feelings you could ever have. You have joy, of course, happiness, but relief is up there. And so you're grateful (laughs) for the fact that you're still in the game. This feels good. And then they say, hey, listen, we're back. I know you feel good about that. Can you just give us a little bit more? And you feel a sense of obligation to give a little bit more. You know, it's interesting, right? Because you mentioned like you're grateful and it's sort of like the old side, you go to the doctor, like it hurts my hand, like it will just stop hitting your hand. Problem solved. And it's like you're grateful for someone that's relieved you from the silence that they imposed upon you. And it's like, yikes, you're setting yourself up as kind of a victim versus being an equal partner at the negotiation table. Exactly. So another thing, too, is that they're training you as well, and you are training them. In every single relationship, there are going to be patterns that are established. And every time you set market clear line in the sand and then you take a little step over it, you're training them to know that this person doesn't have great boundaries. They might say they're establishing a boundary, but it's not real. So I'm going to keep pushing. So that's why I really like the advice that you gave about not just saying best, but best and final. Yeah, it just helps to say that part of the discussion is over. 
it doesn't mean there's nothing else to talk about, which I think is important, right? They've asked for a best and final price. There are still variables that can be used to help get something over the line. If it truly is like, well, then we can't do this. We're going to have to walk. That's not really what anybody wants. That could be just a tactic or it could be true. They really have to go back with something in their hand in order to get this signed. And so you've already drawn a line on the price, but there's still variables, including speed to cash, right? How fast does it get paid? Is it a net 30? Is it a net 90? Can we include something that wasn't part of, let's say the price is with respect to licensing? Well, there's this training cost. Okay, well, that could be separately negotiated, or we can include a few things here or do something custom just for you. So there's these other things around the periphery, but I think it's important once one thing has been decided, because you said it's final or they asked for final and you gave it and that's your best and you can't do better than your best, definitionally, then it's good to stick with that. And then other things around the periphery can be molded to make sure that you do get the deal. Because, you know, all of us are thinking, even as we're talking about this, well, you don't want to say that's your best price and then lose the deal over it. Because if you could have got it for a penny less, like that's done. That's an N minus one that you would play all day in order to get it. And so there are those variables that you can play with to try to make sure that you meet in the middle somewhere. Right. I love it. This was great. Let's move on to the second one. What is the second thing we should never do in sales negotiations? This one also was learned the hard way, I think, in two, maybe three deals, all of which came in about the same time. But for some reason, there were a couple of companies that apparently weren't fully ready to commit. And the way that that manifested itself in the legal document was they inserted what's called a termination for convenience clause. So, you know, here's all the terms of the contract and we're all agreeing to all this stuff and provision of services, how much it costs, this is how long it's going to take to pay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's this little line in there. It's usually one sentence long that says, you know, client has the right to terminate for any reason or no reason at all. So for convenience. And at that point in time, then the vendor will owe refund for all funds that would cover the time period going forward and so forth. And the problem with that line is relatively obvious is that it really undermines the contract in total. It's basically saying, okay, we're binding ourselves to this contract, except one side is saying they can get out of it anytime they want. And so reflexively, sometimes when I've had these conversations with customers and that line is in there, I will strike it now every time because when it was in there a couple of times and we were like, hey, let's just get this deal done. Let's sign it. Really that line being in there was in there because the company hadn't made a full decision to commit to the deal. So then they used it to get out a few months later. And our salespeople were like, what the heck happened? And it's like, well, apparently they were just using this as almost like an extended trial sort of situation. But we're not going to do that again. It's a killer clause. We won't sign an agreement that has that in there. And we've made that plain to any of our customers that come. If it's in there, we're like, that's not fair. And here's the reason it's not fair. You're saying you can walk anytime, but we can't. Can we just like turn off the service anytime we want? And that's just the way it is. And they're like, well, no, of course not. We're relying on the service. We're paying you for it. Our team uses it to be more efficient and effective at their job. You can't just turn it off. We would seek compensation or something through the agreement. And we're like, well, it's the same for us. Like you mentioned before, this is reciprocal. We're both making a commitment to engage in business together. It's not on our paper, but if we're receiving paper from the customer, We'll look at the termination paragraphs and make sure that the word convenience or for any reason, that phrase, that those aren't in there. That's kind of the quick and easy way to search for those. Obviously, you want to read it in its entirety to make sure it's not in there somehow. But usually, if you do a word search for convenience, 
or the phrase for any reason and then strike that because it indicates that one side isn't fully committed to the deal. Hey everyone, I just wanted to pop in and give you a quick reminder about our workshop on February 27th in Columbus, Ohio. It is going to be a lot of fun and I know you're going to get a lot out of it. Based on the feedback from the participants of previous workshops, the benefits of the workshop include feeling more confident in their ability to get what they want and need out of these conversations and the belief that they know what to say, when to say it, and how to say it in order to maximize impact during these difficult conversations. If you want to learn more about the workshop and you want to see the testimonials from people who have been in the workshops before, check out the link in the description to learn more. And now, back to the show. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we have been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. One of the things I've noticed is that the people on the sales team and the very business-oriented people in the negotiation process, they're often so focused on closing the deal and on the dollar amount that's being traded that they often forget the details of the contract. This is not just self-serving, trying to help out my uh, friends, <laughs> my fellow lawyers, but this is a perfect example of why it's so helpful to have attorneys on your team to review the contract that we are designed to read through 30 plus pages of boring legalese. That's what we're here for. And as a lawyer, I know that if I'm receiving a contract from another party, especially in the business context, the lawyer's job on the other side is to draft that contract in the way that gives their client the most flexibility and the most protection. They're not doing it as a service <laughs> for you. And so it's your job to protect yourself and finding out those killer clauses is going to be critical in the negotiation process. Yeah, and I think, and to your point, I think there's an effective way to communicate between legal and the sales team, which is to say, hey, the salesperson is excited because of this big dollar amount that's on the first page and they get commission on that amount. So this is important to close. However, you can communicate then to the sales team, hey, if we were just to sign this and get it done faster, the problem is when they opt out of this in two months, 
then 10 months of the deal that you got commission for, that you think you're getting commission for, you're either not going to get, or you've gotten already. And the company may have a policy likely has a policy to claw that back. And that is a very uncomfortable situation to be in for the salesperson and for the company. No one really likes to do that. Like, Hey, so that deal you closed, it didn't work out. They used a legal loophole to get out of it. So we're not getting paid. And so as a result, you can't get paid. We're going to have to claw back that commission that you booked or that we actually paid you out and get it back. Or we'll have to you know, take it out of future commissions or something like that. That is not something anyone wants to do. The company doesn't want to do it. The salesperson doesn't want to do it. And so that's where legal's role or whoever's reviewing the contract for some companies, that's the sales manager, the sales director, but it's great to have lawyer on staff or an outsourced attorney that's looking at this to say, let's avoid that because it's painful internally to have that happen. And so we're not going to just sign contracts to get them across the line when they include a clause that could potentially do that to us. Absolutely. And the killer clauses may vary depending on industry. And so that's another reason why knowing this particular clause, like being able to cancel or terminate for any purpose, that's one that I think in general <laughs> is horrible. But there are going to be some sneaky clauses that are industry specific. And so if you're a company that cannot afford legal counsel on every single deal, talking to an attorney and asking him or her to walk you through some of those clauses that you should look out for in their absence would be helpful. Having that guidance from somebody, whether it's, the, like you said, the sales manager or an attorney, just being able to have that knowledge of what could potentially be a problem is going to be helpful. And preferably, if you give them the contract first, maybe you can get in a situation where you are using your preferred contract or at least starting the negotiation from your preferred contract too, because that's another example of anchoring. Uh, shout out to the anchoring episode <laughs> from uh, 2017. But yeah, because your contract is going to be written in your favor. And then the edits that they make to the contract will, yes, bring it closer to some level of equity. But if you start with your contract, it's going to be more in your favor at the end of the deal. Yeah. And it's easier to find, right? So if you use right. yours, obviously, you're not going to put termination for convenience in there. But then in the markup, if you see, well, they added it, then it's pretty straightforward just to unadd it, right? You strike it and you say, yeah, that thing you tried to add, that's not happening. And that's frequently the case. Most companies do try to use your paper as often as possible just because it simplifies. You already know what's in there. So if there's no changes to it, then we don't have to review it again after the client sees it and signs it. But we just sign it because we wrote it. We know what's in there. And meanwhile, if it's theirs, we have to spend more time with it. But frequently, if the client marks it up, there's also a lot of smaller things, changes that they will make. Sometimes the attorneys will even change the punctuation, right? Or they change the <laughs> format. And it's like, that's fine. If you guys like how this font looks better than the other font, we're happy with it. Yeah. You, know, you want to make changes based venue, for example. In some industries and for some companies, that's super important. For others, not so much. So you might say, great, you want venue to be New York versus California? Okay, we'll concede on that. And we'll concede on the 50 other little small grammatical changes that you made. But that one termination for convenience clause, like that's a killer clause. We're not going to agree to that now. We're not going to agree to it in the third markup either. So let's just have that conversation up front, get it out, and then move on. And we can sign it with all your other changes in there. So from a reciprocity standpoint, say, so, hey, you made 50 changes. We agreed to 49. But that 50th, that was really a sticker. And obviously, we're very reasonable people because we agreed to almost everything. But this one is such a big deal. We just can't sign off on it. 
That's brilliant. And I think that's a good way to wrap up this point, too, because like you said, if you make a concession, you want to keep track of those concessions and let them know about those concessions when you are putting your foot down in certain areas. And so that's a perfect way to conceptualize it in the argument to the other side. Listen, you ask for 50 things. I gave you 49. We're reasonable. However, (laughs) that one, that's where we draw the line. Yeah, 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 we love sending that that email of just a short template that says, hey, we've agreed to all your changes except these two small things. So if you guys can come back to us and say you agree those two small things, we've got a deal. And that makes it pretty easy for the other side. Perfect. And now lastly, number three, what is the third thing that we should not do in sales negotiations? So this has to do with kind of earlier on before you even get into the contracting phase. I had a customer, this is when I was the only salesperson at Cirrus, and they called and said, do you do X, Y, Z, some description of a workflow or a feature? And they used a term of art that meant something very specific to me, and it means something very specific in the industry. Do you do that? Point blank, like they've done a bunch of research and they want to know, does this app do this or not? And I said, no, we don't do that. That's something you find elsewhere that's not really in our space. Here's all the things we do really well. And we think could be useful to you, but to your specific question, no, we don't. And then I didn't hear from them again, but I kept following up. And then at the end of the day, oh, well, we found what we were looking for. We bought this other application. It was a competitor application. I was like, they don't do that either. Why in the world would you choose that over us? They said, no, they do do it. We were looking for this. And the problem was they had used a phrase that was a term of art. They didn't really mean that. They meant something else. And that something else is something not only did we do, we were the first to do it. And at the time, and I still believe now, we were the best at doing it. And so I was really kicking myself because it was a good sized customer. And I had told them no, because they asked me a point blank question, right? Is your name Mike? And I'm like, no, my name's not Mike. And it's like, oh, I actually meant is your name Jeff? So, oh yeah, in that case it is. And so I started to reflect on like, how did this go sideways? I really like to have that customer. Now a competitor has them. It's really irritating to me. And so it kind of party line around the sales team as we grew it afterward was like, look, I made this mistake early on. We're not going to have that mistake made again. When a customer asked you, you know, hey, do you do something? If there's any lack of clarity around the question, then I think we do what you're talking about. I could use a little more information, though. I'm also going to check on our side so we can send you some specs some documentation about it. But the default becomes more of a yes or a maybe. Right. But we don't lead with. No, we don't do that because sometimes the customer is asking and they don't really know what they're asking for, or they're using a term of art that they've borrowed from some other industry or some other product they've used in the past. And it has no relationship to what you do with your service or product. So, you know, I was trying to be helpful. I was trying to say, we don't do this, but we do do these other things. And instead we found the better approach is basically lead with yes. Yes, we do that. I think so. If I understand you correctly, right. And then seek clarification, And if they really mean something we don't do, then we're like, okay, we totally understand. We don't do that. But more often than not, it's like, well, we don't do it exactly the way you're describing, but we do do this and it achieves the same goal, but better. Or it also does these five other things that supplement, you know, where you're trying to go with this workflow in our space. And so it works out much better for us to lead that way so that we're not essentially just leading with a no and the customer leaves and they never come back. This reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. It says, the difficult thing about communication is the illusion that it has occurred. (laughs) And this is one of those situations. And a lot of times we just take for granted that 
Since we're speaking the same language, we share the same definitions for the same phrases and words, but that's not the case. That's an assumption that can be devastating, as you found out. And so a simple way to address that is, what exactly do you mean by blank? And oftentimes it comes as a result of a question that they ask. And before I answer the question, I will stop and get a clear definition of the word. And not only does it give me a clear definition so we're on the same page semantically, but it also gives me time to think because usually if I'm doing that, it's a pretty important question too. So making sure you're on the same page with regard to the words that are being utilized in the conversation is going to be critical. Yeah, and it borrows from an experience we had. We brought in someone that's part of an improv troupe. They do improvisation, live theater, and make stuff up. And so we brought them in to talk with our entire team, sales certainly, but also marketing and support and so forth. They kind of talk about, hey, what are lessons from improv that we can use? And of course, the big line that encompasses all of improv is yes and. When you're up on stage and someone throws something at you and it's totally out of left field because it's improv and when stuff comes out of left field, it's fun for the audience because it's like, oh my gosh, that's crazy that that happened. When that happens, you don't react by just saying, oh, that's so weird. Or like, what? That's not where I'm going with this in my mind. You just accept it as reality, as truth. Yes. And then you can pivot anywhere you want. So you can pivot directly opposite to what they just said or did. You can pivot to the side and make it kind of interesting over here, or you can just continue with what you think is their line of thought. And it's an effective way just to keep the story going, which that's a lot of sales, right? It's starting the conversation then keeping that story going, building up a yes pattern, getting the reciprocity in the contracting, and then closing the deal and moving toward implementation or final sale or delivery or whatever your industry is. So yes, and became our kind of the motto. And we borrowed that from improv. And I think it's a really helpful way to do sales in the early stage. And it can also be helpful even through legal and procurement. Yes, I see your request. And we can't do that because it's a killer clause. Yes, and that's no problem. We'll accept your venue. No big deal. And that it helps smooth communication and also makes it so that people aren't, you know, maybe hearing a word that is more adversarial, like, no, no, (laughs) I won't agree to that. And then it's like everyone gets their, you know, their hair rises a little bit and they're saying, well, I'm going to get you back. I'm going to say no to the next thing you say. And then you get into that no pattern. So instead, it's yes, and, and it helps to get to that next part of the conversation. I was reading a book on uh, parenting because it is uh, infinitely difficult (laughs) for me. And one of the things they said was when you are dealing with your child and you have to reject a request, it's better to, instead of saying no, to say, give a conditional yes. Because oftentimes the no's that we need to deliver are not absolute. It has to be a no given the circumstances right now. However, if X, Y, Z were to change, then we could have it. And so essentially, yes and allows you to give a conditional yes. So they might ask for something and we could say yes. And the way that we can make that work is if X, Y, Z. Because oftentimes that no is interpreted as a threat. And threats trigger the limbic system, which has the fight or flight response. And now you don't have them in the right mindset to negotiate effectively. You're speaking to the wrong brain, uh, the wrong part of the brain. (laughs) They can use their trump card. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You don't want that at all. You don't want that. This is really great. And I know we're coming up on time, but before you go, what, in your opinion, is one thing that our audience members could do to become better negotiators this week? This week? It's a great question. One of the things that we found to be effective 
and that we encourage is finding as many means of communication as possible with the other side. I, I love your quote from before, right? Problem with communication is the assumption or the, the feeling that it happened and it, maybe it didn't. So today we have this abundance of communication media, email, voicemail, live phone call, meeting in person, Zoom video, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? We're on a Skype call now. And because of all that, we're all being bombarded with communication all the time. And that can impede what should be a relatively straightforward negotiation. Sometimes there's like, man, this is like an easy point to resolve. But then you find you're going back and forth like 25 times by email and you're starting to tear your hair out like it shouldn't be this hard. And in many cases, it doesn't need to be. One of the things based on your timeline, right, what can we do this week? I think one of the best things that we as salespeople can do is to ask for and hopefully get the counterparty's cell phone number. Sounds kind of silly. It's like, well, of course. I mean, I call them whatever. It's like, make sure it's the cell phone. If you have their cell phone, that tends to be, in our experience at least, the best way to cut through all the other communication media. It's like, let's get this out of email. Let's get this out of instant message or Skype or Zoom call. And hey, I have a question on a very specific point. Can we get this done? Send that as a text message, right? We all read our text messages. We miss some emails, voicemails, only check those at the end of the day because I was in meetings all day. The text message is going to get through even if they're in a meeting. So if you need to get through that last negotiation point or you need to find out, hey, are you guys going to be able to sign that today? Because I've got my VP waiting on my side. So you know, can you just let me know as a courtesy? That's a great text message to send through. And then, of course, at the very end, if you need to get everybody on the same call rather than scheduling it and like, let's all dial in to the voice bridge. It's like be the bridge yourself. Voice call them. Voice call legal on your side. OK, great. We're on a three or four or five way call. Let's just all get this nailed down. You know, however long we need to spend, let's get it done. So getting that mobile phone number, requesting it is a good thing for negotiation. And in the earlier stage of the sale, it's a pretty effective way to find out where you are in the deal. If you can't get it from them, either because you can't reach them or they're unwilling to give it to you, I think that gives you a signal of where you are in the sale, which is not as far maybe as you hoped or thought that you were. Whereas if they're readily giving it like, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, you hit me up any time because we're going to be doing business together going forward. So let's build this relationship. That sounds like a really good trending indicator for you that you have that number. Brandon, this is incredible. <laughs> that is so good. Of course, yes, it is great for the purposes of higher level and more direct communication. And yes, it is a great bellwether for where you are in the relationship and how they view you. But there's another benefit. It's the psychological benefit. I'm really a psychologist that happened to become a lawyer, not the other way around. My undergrad degrees in psychology. And one of the things they found is that oftentimes behavior precedes understanding. And then we interpret our understanding of the situation based on our behavior. And so in this situation, if you ask for a uh, somebody's cell phone, they might just reflexively say, yeah, here's my cell. But then after the fact, when they are trying to seek understanding in their behavior with the fact that they're texting you and calling you on the cell phone, they ask, what kind of relationship do I have with a person if we are talking on each other's cell phones? I must like this person. We, we must, must be, be friends. friends. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so that act, just the fact that you are now communicating via cell phone is persuasive in and of itself because now they are seeing you completely differently because you've taken yourself from just a cold business relationship to a warmer friendship. Yeah, I'll even add a small point at the end, which is we found this to be very effective at conferences. 
and trade shows where trade shows are pretty famous or infamous as it were for you've got a lot of rabid vendors that have set up their booth and boy would they like to sell you something right now and so as you're moving between session to session it's sort of like how can i get through this as quickly as possible or not make eye contact or just get free t-shirts but not actually engage in conversation and so we came to kind of the realization that you know, people are not here because they're like, I want to go shopping. They're here at the conference, yes, to learn probably, but they're really at the conference to have fun. They're out of the office. This is a chance to interact with their peers. They want to have a good time. This is why happy hours and networking events at conferences are always the best attended. And so it's like, okay, how do we have fun with people? And so we try to make the booth engaging and interesting. Yes, we want to answer questions about our product service. We want to be educational. We want to be responsive, but we also want to help people have fun, right? We have a giveaway, tell a funny story. And, you know, one of our people that always manages the booths, James, on our team, it has a great rapport with people. He just knows how to smile and engage them and say something funny and they're laughing and having a good time. And one of the things that then we do is like, hey, this is great. You know, show the folks back at the home office or get a photo, right? Send it to your kids, send it to your family. This will be fun. And so they'll take a selfie together and it's like, hey, cool, I'll send you, what's your phone number? That way I can text you the photo, right? And so it's like now they've got our number on their phone because we just sent them the photo. We've got their number and they've got this photo showing them with us having a great time. And they can then share that with their colleagues. Like I'm at the Cirrus Insight booth. I've just met these folks, but they're awesome. And I'm having a great time at this conference in Orlando. And everyone's thinking, that sounds great, right? And then, then afterwards, when we're following up and saying, hey, you know, is there, do you have a need for our application? Would you like to start a trial, et cetera? They're thinking, well, at least I know I really like these people. I should at least give their technology a chance versus, a, oh yeah, that was that vendor that came at me. And I was like, I didn't want to talk. I didn't have time before my session, but they really wanted to scan my badge. And it was really awkward. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. It's just like, take a selfie, show them having fun. They see their smiling face. Like you say, the behavior is, how do I make sense of this behavior? I must've been having a great time. They must've helped make my conference a good experience and you've advanced the deal. So anyway, that's more on the prospecting side. If there's people listening that are on the lead generation, demand generation, start of the relationship. We found the selfies to be effective way to, to show them that they had fun. I love this. Oh, this is good. I could talk to you about this forever, but I know we have commuters <laughs> in the audience. So uh, to be respectful of their time, I'll wrap it up here. But Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show. And before you leave, please, again, tell the audience about your program. If you've heard me now on the program talk about Cirrus Insight, our website is Cirrus, C-I-R-R-U-S, insight.com. Uh, people have sometimes called us Citrus Insight, like we're a fruit company, or Circus Insight, which sounds super awesome to me, like analytics for Barnum & Bailey or something like that. But it's Cirrus, like the high wispy clouds, because we do cloud software. Cirrus Insight, we connect Gmail and Outlook with Salesforce. So if you're a salesperson or your company uses Salesforce, Hopefully we can save you a lot of time and also boost your Salesforce adoption. And if anybody finds themselves in Knoxville, Tennessee, swing by on a Friday at noon and you can join us for our company lunch. Fantastic. Thank you again for coming on the show. This has been great. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Kwame. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please leave a review and subscribe and tell your friends. Our goal is to help as many people as possible. And when you leave reviews, it makes it easier for people to find us in the searches. Thanks again for being a listener. I'll catch you in the next one.